A great story is should be cathartic escapism. We don't have great stories that are cathartic escapism, they're just escapism. When you start selling cinema tickets like they're drugs, you basically emotionally and psychologically traumatize an audience over time, where it gets to a point where people are going into the cinema and buying tickets, but they're actually feeling nothing, because what's missing is the hidden architecture of storytelling and psychology. There are few people on this planet who understand storytelling better than Mike Hill. His lectures on story have been seen hundreds of thousands of times. He's worked on projects like Love, Death, and Robots, Blade Runner 2049, Game of Thrones, and more. He's worked with some of the biggest names in the film industry like Denny Villeneuve, Tim Miller, and David Fincher, just to name a few. I was lucky enough to sit down with Mike for an hour to try and understand why films aren't resonating as deeply as they once did, and what we can do to tell better stories. So I was listening to an, another podcast, I believe it was the Collective podcast that you did recently, and you were talking about when you watched one of the new Star Wars, I believe it was Star Wars The Force Awakens, that you didn't get the feeling you wanted to have when watching that movie. And I'm curious what the feeling is you're looking for when you're watching a film. I think it's a, it's a feeling of resonance that the the patterns that are, that are playing out through the, the characters and through the storyline and through the, the conflict and through the challenges. And it needs to resonate on a level that is, let's say, psychologically true to life. And and for me, there's two sides to getting that resonance. There's a, there's a technical side to storytelling, which is that there's got to be cause and effect. There's got to be consequentiality. There's got to be establishing a clear psychologically and emotionally relevant pattern of problems. And then there's got to be a sensical, um, when I say sensical, I don't mean procedural. I mean, uh, a believable set of reactions and actions that characters take to solve a problem. So on the one side, there's the technical aspect of storytelling, which is that not like a mechanism, but just as a series of consequential actions, it's got to flow in a way that, that is real to life. Um, and really, th th I think that's ultimately what was missing for me when I watched something like The Force Awakens is I can feel and I can also articulate on some degree when I analyze a film what's gone wrong in the writing process that leads to the absence of that feeling. And what's useful about films like Force Awakens is you've got a clear ability to do a side-by-side, -side, which is okay, well, here's this thing that made millions of people, billions of people feel something for 40 years. And here's this new derivative of that thing, which is clearly divisive in its reception in the world at large. So then you simply say, well, what's what's happening? What's changed? What's Let's do a side-by-side -side comparison, especially because The Force Awakens has so many surface level attributes that are, are lifted from the original. But what's missing is the hidden architecture of storytelling and psychology, which is what ultimately went missing with these these sequels. And I do want to talk about that architecture, but I also want to ask, when, specifically when it comes to The Force Awakens, do you think that part of it too is it was they tried to too closely mirror those original films that people loved? Because I've been studying James Cameron for the last couple of months, and what he always does with his sequels is he takes the, part, the pieces people love but he presents them to you in a new way. And with The Force yes. Awakens, it felt like they were just trying to recreate the original film in a modern context. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can speculate about what's gone on in the, in the process behind the scenes on The Force Awakens. First of all, whereas the original film is handled by a few individuals in kind of creative, um, in a kind of very 
focused creative flow. When you get to a behemoth like Disney handling a sequel, it's going to be basically a creative process of of uh, committee, which means that okay, well, this executive producer with a relatively big ego and a lot of power has decided over the weekend that they really liked a scene from the original movie and that they can tie it in with you know some gimmick with some modern actor. And then that becomes the primary drive of the writing room is to now f- bring in this extrinsic, completely arbitrary feature of some executive producer. Um, so I think that what James Cameron does so well is that because he's a tor- he's a force of nature, he gets to maintain such a high level of creative control that it doesn't get diluted by committees and by extrinsic factors and by, let's say, um, there's probably no no one in Hollywood, for want of a better word, that has an ego as big as James Cameron. So he's got the the, the confidence to say what he wants and he's got the the commercial backing to to prove his worth. So so there's less people challenging James Cameron, which also can backfire, as George Lucas found out with the prequels, and I would say James Cameron's found out with Avatar. Um, I think that you do need constraints from the outside world to to push through. For example, I'll give you a good example. Terminator 1 and Terminator 2. Terminator 1, you know, he he was a vision that he had after a fever dream in Italy where he had a dream and he visualized the Terminator and then he came up with this concise story on a shoestring budget and constraints drove the whole thing. And then when the sequel to Terminator, when he when he was asked to do a sequel to Terminator 2, he for a very for very uh for a series of reasons which are quite obscure, I'll, I'll just summarize it. He had to get a script out in 2 weeks before the Cannes Film Festival. So he and the co-writer had two weeks to squeeze out Terminator 2. And that pressure is like they squeezed out a diamond in two weeks. And I actually think that that is a very healthy thing sometimes when you've got a creative like James Cameron is to say, no, you don't have 11 years to work on the sequel, James. You've got two weeks. And that that makes you think in very clear, bold terms. Okay, well, I've, I've got this original film. It's Sarah Connor. She's She has to um, survive uh, the 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 assassination of the Terminator in order to give birth to John Connor. She's a, a kind of soft, doughy waitress, and she turns into something that's far more kind of empowered and independent. Well, how do we invert that for a sequel? Well, she goes from being empowered, driving off into the to the stormy sunset on the Mexico highway with a with a John Connor in her in her belly, and then the first time we see her again in Terminator Two, she's considered a psychopath and she's in a mental asylum. So her entire world has been thrown upside down. All of our preconceptions have been turned upside down. And then that immediately finds the ability for you to say, well, okay, well, what's this story about? And it's about a mother and daughter. It's a, a, a mother and son relationship. It's about finding redemption, rekindling a broken family relationship. And then suddenly you see that the Terminator, Sarah and John suddenly become, uh, metaphorically speaking, placeholders for family dynamics and boom it's no longer time travel it's about the 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 reunification of a broken family and trust and uh finding faith in humanity again and finding faith in a loved one and suddenly those are human themes so i've gone off on a tangent there but james cameron was the master of doing that and he did exactly the same thing for, for that for the record when he picked up ridley scott's alien and was asked to do the sequel or when he wanted to do the sequel he, he followed a very similar template, which is he took Sigourney Weaver um, and then immediately established at the beginning of Aliens, when she awakes from cryosleep, her family, her daughter has died in that time that she was away. 
which suddenly the audience now recognizes that the emotional weight of, of um, Ripley's journey is, is coming to atonement for the fact that she's lost her daughter. And what does Cameron then do? Uh, an exactly the same aged uh, daughter, uh, a girl, is found on the, the alien planet and then she has a chance to redeem herself and, and, and basically get closure and atonement for that emotional um, breakage that happens at the beginning of the film. So Cameron's very particular in, in establishing genuinely good family, psychological, emotional dynamics, which is ironic because he, he can come across as a hard ass, but he knows he knows what he's doing, you know? Absolutely. Have you heard the Tarantino quote on Howard Stern in the 90s where it's someone shows up to heaven and they see somebody on a crane taking footage of everyone as they're coming in and they went, oh, I didn't know James Cameron was in heaven. And they went, no, 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 he's not. God just thinks he's James Cameron. <laughs> and just in, in respect to his, I didn't do it verbatim, but that's, uh, I was reading uh, a book on a bunch of uh, Cameron interviews and that was like the quote that started off one of them was, was Tarantino on Howard Stern. Tarantino and, has got the best insights on everything, pretty much, you know. Yeah. I could listen to him talk for hours. Just He gets me excited listening to him talk. I want to go create as soon as I finish listening to him. But back to, with those stories, with Terminator 2, with Aliens, are those themes something like, especially with Terminator 2, when he has two weeks to write that? I know him and Bill Wisher had been talking about it for months or years, even leading up to it just casually, how they would do a sequel. But in those two weeks, is that a thought that comes out consciously or is it a subconscious thought that, he doesn't necessarily realize he's doing when he's writing that story to make this family dynamic. Is that something as storytellers you should be thinking of in the moment, or is that a subconscious thing that just comes out without even thinking about? It? Well, I've had um, I've had the the sort of privilege of after doing various lectures on Cameron and Spielberg, I ended up um, being moved to LA to work under the working studios, you know, within the inner inner circles of of some high end people like David Fincher and Tim Miller. And uh, Tim worked with James Cameron, um, and Cameron's watched my analysis, and he's and he, the the feedback was there are things in here which I'm not conscious of, but I accept are there. There are things here that are attributed to symbolism when they're actually just technical choices that were consistent. So style basically being a, a side effect of consistency in technical execution. And there are some things that uh, you know he thinks is just completely overseeing things, but the one takeaway that I took from from the feedback was that he he basically said that he had no cog, uh, conscious un, uh, knowledge of Joseph Campbell, the monomyth, um, the psychological kind of building blocks of story. He was just riffing, you know, unconsciously. And to me, I, I think that's a completely makes complete sense because all Joseph Campbell's monomyth theory is effectively a codification of unconscious patterns. So naturally, the unconscious creates those patterns and the conscious encodes them. But you don't have to have any knowledge of the conscious patterns to be able to unconsciously bring forth ideas that just resonate. And I, and I think that what's important about that observation is that that is the reason that directors uh, have very strong younger years, but they can become ossified in their later films is because they're riffing on the unconscious kind of passions when they're younger, just like what feels cool, what feels right, what feels groovy, <laughs> you know? And then when they get to say Ridley Scott age 75, where it's like, okay, well, let's dust off the Alien franchise, let's dust off Gladiator. It's no longer riffing on the unconscious. It's just kind of like, well, I don't want to retire yet. So I guess let's try and recreate a sequel to this franchise or something. So, so yes, I think it's largely 
almost exclusively the unconscious and the conscious brain is just there to double check, you know, cross the T's and dot the I's effectively and, and just make sure that everything's tight. When should you revisit a sequel? Are you talking about really Scott, they're revisiting Gladiator or Aliens because he just wants to keep the career going, but that's also, it's like a financial decision and a not wanting to, to let go decisions. Like when does it make sense to actually do a sequel? I think there's a quote from David Fincher and I'm butchering it, but it, it's to the effect of a script should be the reason you make a sequel, not an excuse. And by that, what he means is the only time you should ever make a sequel is when an idea that's so strong has pushed through into the minds of the writers and they've generated a script and they say, this is actually a great sequel. Let's go and see if a studio wants to make it. What happens most often is it's the inverse, which is a studio says, well, which franchise can we, can we like drill for more profits now? They identify what franchise is ready to be resurrected. They set up a writer's room with no clear idea of why there should be another sequel, just that there should be. And then suddenly what you have is this committee based, well, okay, well, how can we justify spending 200 million and marketing a sequel to this film just to gain profits when there's not actually an idea there? So, um, for example, I, I worked on Blade Runner 2049, um, that wasn't a, a script that was, um, uh, developed because of studio interest, that was a script that was developed because the original writers, or the let's say the, the script writers who who were tra you know um, translating Philip K. Dick's work, they saw an opportunity to tell a new story in that world, and they developed a script that was really really strong, and then it got shopped around in in highly private circles, and then Denny Villeneuve came across it and and thought, I love the original Blade Runner, this is a great script. And I will make it because I don't want anyone else to bugger it up. That, in his own words, because I, I, I just didn't want anyone to fuck it up. So, so ultimately, it's it's the idea should should demand to be made. The studio shouldn't demand an idea to be generated. But yet they keep demanding that they be generated. And so, yeah, is it yeah, yeah. Well, it, purely it's, a financial thing. I, I think things move in cycles. So we've we're reaching the end of a of a. So let's say multi-decade process where film studios have spent so much time investing in rehashes and reboots and sequels that the audience that eventually the free market votes with their with their ticket buying and um it's been effective up until now but it's a bit like the best way i can think to describe it is that when you start to see cinema as you start selling cinema tickets like they're drugs um, there comes a point where for a certain period of time, you can keep cutting the quality of the drugs. And for a short period of time, you'll actually make more money because if you half the quality of, you know, a bag of heroin and your, your addicts don't get high on it, they'll come back and buy a second bag. And it's a bit of a weird analogy, but the point I'm making is that when you don't give people the satisfaction they're looking for, for a short period of time, they'll just buy more hoping that they'll get that fix. But eventually you, you basically emotionally and psychologically uh, traumatize an audience over time. It's like Chinese water, water torture, where it gets to a point where people are going into the cinema and buying tickets and buying streaming, but they're actually feeling nothing because the, the, uh, the material that's being generated in huge quantities is just ossified, self-referential, lacking in originality, lacking in any spiritual or emotional depth. And then eventually what happens is just the, the sales dry up, which is what we're seeing with, I don't know, what is it, phase whatever of the Marvel franchise, 
that there comes a point where you're pushing you're pushing on a piece of string. So 20 years ago, Marvel was a solid stick that you could push, you know, into the market and and, and it would affect the market. Now it's like having a piece of spaghetti and you're pushing it, but it's just not having any effect on anything. And eventually what will happen, and it will be, I think it will be fairly um, dramatic, is that there will be just a systemic break at some point where the big studios collapse in their current form. And from the pieces, the, the latent talent within those studios will step, for, step forward and make something new. And all of the, the bloated bureaucratic administration that comes with making a film, of which I can assure you, <laughs> Like the, it, the majority of these institutions are pointless middlemen that add weight to the to the budgets and degrade the the quality of the projects. But eventually, it it, it crumbles in on itself, and I think that's what's actually happening. Like the above the on movies, the the above the line costs are ninety percent of the movie. You know, you could for a sing, for a for a flight a ticket for a, an executive producer to visit the set in a private jet. And then go back to the US. You know, if they fly to Europe and come back, it costs fifty thousand dollars. You can fly the entire crew around Europe multiple times for that amount of money on a on a commercial charter. So you have like ten executive producers. They're literally taking up ninety percent of the budget instead of that money going on screen. You could quite easily, under a more nimble business model, make four or five times as many movies, which is it's it's nuts. But eventually, the talent. The talent will get will be part of the renaissance and the talentless will be part of the carnage of the collapse, which is the same in any institution over time. And you talked about cycles. So this the most recent time we had this with the power was in the creator, the director more than with the studio. It would be the nineties, right? Like the indie wave of the nineties when like guys like Tarantino and Rodriguez and all those guys came up, right? That's probably the most recent time we've had we've seen that. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean Tarantino talks about how the 70s was a period of great innovation in movies and experimentation. Then the 80s, which I actually, I think that the 80s generated some good movies, and he, he says that too as well. It's not like he's saying that the whole decade was a waste of time, but you know the 80s became more formulaic and executive-produced kind of studio films. Then the 90s, you saw another resurgence of, of great movies, and I'd say 1999, what, yeah, um, the 90s is just ridiculous. Like The 90s was one of the greatest periods in filmmaking. Um, you know, I think 93, like in one summer, it was like four of the greatest films ever made came out in one go. It was like Jurassic Park and uh, I forget which films it was, but it was Shawshank? like- Shawshank? Was Shawshank in that? Shawshank, Jurassic. You could go to the cinema and like take your pick of classics that had just been released. Whereas now you go to the cinema and it's just, I mean, it's a its a wasteland. And I mean, I mean that, like, I genuinely think it's, it's a spiritually um, bankrupt wasteland, the cinema going experience now. So the 90s was great. The noughties had a few good moments. The last 10 years, I would say, has been relatively disastrous. Um, and the cycle and the, the, the cycle of culture, the cycle of films are deeply intertwined. Anyone who looks around right now can see that we are in an unraveling, culturally, psychologically, collectively. The systems of belief that we had are, are, are falling apart. Um, people can sense it. You know, it's, COVID was one component of that the the various um let's say top down measures that are being instated by governments across the world is is a sign of fracturing because when subs, when something's in control you don't squeeze as hard as you as you know the upper levels of society are doing right now so we are going through an unraveling and when that unraveling uh takes place it becomes a trauma that inspires the renaissance of the next generation and i i think that what we're going to see in the next uh 10 years and there's a 3 year lag as well so 
the things we're seeing now were greenlit three years ago. Um, so we haven't yet even seen the creative output that's going to come as a side effect of the last three years of experience, which have been drastically different from the previous 25 years that, you know, that nobody making films in the nineties could have, could have fathomed what it would have been like to live from 2020, 2020 to 2023. Um, so we're going to see basically a fresh, fresh, uh, surge of creativity in the next few years. Do you think part of the reason that these sequels have done so well, you mentioned how people aren't feeling anything, but do you almost think that for the audience, that's a benefit with so much chaos going on around them that filmmaking almost acts as a form of self-soothing self and if they don't have to feel anything, that's fine because everything outside of the theater is going poorly for them? Yes and no. I think that ultimately film is a form of catharsis. It's it's people, you can call it two things and they mean the same thing. Like therapy and escapism are the same thing. Like it's just one is branded as being one of, uh, when you go to therapy, you're going through a, a form of escapism from your current mindset. And when you go to escapism, you're, you're numbing yourself to your current mindset. A great story is, should be cathartic escapism. We don't have great stories that are cathartic escapism. They're just escapism. So you go and watch Jurassic World Dominion. There is not a single spiritually enriching, emotionally enriching, sociologically enriching idea in any of those godforsaken sequels. None. It is, it is bereft of meaning. Meaningless, utter crap. And that is because it's generated by people who are only capable of generating utterly meaningless crap, which is the executive producer class that just has very shallow values and is exporting it to the rest of the world. People are tired. People go to the cinema to feel connected and to feel resonance with themselves and with each other. That's, that's why films like Jurassic Park hit, hit such a universal audience. Um, so I would say that this, the future of storytelling is, is returning to something that actually has some emotional or spiritual resonance. And these films don't, they're just, they are, if Jurassic Park is like a nutritious meal that just enriches your body, then Jurassic Park Dominion is just like sitting with a box of, of, of sugary poisonous candy. Sure. They're both digestible, but one of them is going to make you feel better. And the other one's going to make you very, very sick and over time will kill you this renaissance that's going to happen, it's not going to be a con complete doing away with the current state. It'll be marrying it with story, right? Because right now it's all spectacle. I feel like there's a half-assed story just to get to the spectacle and no story itself. So you think that, do you think it'll overcorrect and it'll go all story with no spectacle or will it find somewhere in the middle? Well, it, the, the reason why we're not going to lose spectacle is because spectacle used to be the, ex the exclusive domain of budget, big budget movies. Because the actual capacity to make uh, spectacle was limited to those who had a checkbook that was basically unlimited. You know, if back in the day, I mean, Christ, if you look at what what uh, AI can do now, it's rendering entire departments of, of CGI houses irrelevant. Because in, in a handful of hours, it can generate um, simulations of, of uh, physical physics simulations and then layer on top of that rendering and then you can you can effectively create spectacle in Unreal Engine Five with an AI assistant. You know it, it's it's insane. It's insane. So it's no longer going to be the the exclusive domain of the big studios to have spectacle. 
And then the creative power comes back into the hands of the guerrilla filmmakers and the indie filmmakers. And then though it, those indie filmmakers who have the ability to master this new wave of technology are going to be able to completely outperform the storytelling and the spectacle of Warner Brothers and Legendary and Marvel. So I think we're not going to lose spectacle. I just think that it's going to find itself being employed in the service of, of great storytelling again. And that can only happen when individuals are at the helm of the stories rather than executives and committees, which is a completely impersonal system rather than creative energy coming from individuals. Um, so, you know, that, that seems to be the general pattern that I've noticed, you know, like even, even on like Blade Runner, right? There's, there's committees and there's executive producers, but there's also this kind of strange anomaly that's at the center of this film production, which all of the executive producers recognize is kind of important, which is this, this, uh, visionary director called Denis Villeneuve. And because he's got, let's say momentum and inertia and clout within Hollywood for his his recent films and his award-winning films, he gets more traction with getting his decisions through than say some, some director who made some indie film in 2007 or 2008, who then got brought into the upper echelons of Hollywood, not because they're creative visionaries, but because they're competent people to point the camera where the executives want them to point it. So a lot of these, a lot of these directors and Denny Villeneuve isn't one of them. Denny Villeneuve is a man who's hired and respected to bring the vision to life. Most of these directors are actually just seen as, as glorified cameramen. Um, and they are expected to bow down to the whims and desires of whatever their, their paymasters tell them to do. And, and that can be at the, that can be because of arbitrary desires, such as just personal politics, as we see with star Wars and the, the kind of the, the woke upper management of Disney which is now falling flat on his face because the market is just, just hates it. The market doesn't want to be, to be preached at with these progressive messages. Um, so that falls by the wayside eventually. Um, and yeah, and ultimately, yeah, like I say, it, it collapses. It's inevitable. It collapses and we're already seeing it in the box office returns. Um, so yeah. Sorry, I've gone off on a tangent there. I forget forget what the original, That's okay. original question was. With, with the rise of AI and giving power back to the individual now, I'm assuming that's going to lead us to an overabundance of content because if everyone can make something, then everyone in theory will make something. What do you think is going to separate those pieces that are going to rise above the rest? When I when I first started getting into concept art, so I, I, before I became um, a, I went through various stages in my career from illustrator to 3D modeler, to VFX artist, to script consultant, to, to everything in between. And I remember that when I started, there was this phase where if you as an illustrator that worked on two in 2D, we'd call it 2D artist, which is where you, you have your canvas, you have your paints, you have your paintbrush and you, you make an image. If you suddenly said, well, I think I could get better imagery and better levels of production out of moving into 3d animation you would have the 2d artists kind of scoff at how that's not real art because a computer helped you right and why that's a stupid analogy to say that is you could equally say to an artist you didn't mix your own paints or kill the animal for the hair that made the paintbrush therefore you're not you're not part of the entire process like so the artistic process is looking for ways to express the the 
whatever it is you have to bring to the world. And everyone has something to bring to the world. Some people are craftsmen, so they've developed a craft which makes them more capable of making a product. But that doesn't necessarily mean they have more to say. It generally does because people that develop a craft have to, to have a certain level of discipline that forces them to really take seriously the act of making things. So generally speaking, craftsmen are always um, have a higher capacity to to make something that resonates. But then there's also people that have no technical abilities that are like poets who can who can you know a great example of this is Rick Rubin, the, the music producer. So Rick Rubin, I only found this out recently. I've just started reading his book, but Rick Rubin is, has been one of the most important muses for uh, musicians for the last you know 25, 30 years ranging from all of the most celebrated musicians. And they come to him because they respect his opinion and they respect his insights and his intuitions. The guy can't work a production board. He, has, he doesn't play any instruments. He's got no musical technical ability whatsoever. He's just more like a kind of philosopher muse that can bring his insights to what he thinks is working and not working in the musical context. So. On paper, he's got no technical abilities whatsoever, but he can guide a creative process. And the reason I'm bringing all that up is because I think that ultimately the people that learn to see OpenAI as a new canvas for by association, which is the creative process, which is putting juxtapositioning ideas together to generate something new. Those who are thinking in a poetic mindset will have an opportunity to actually um, make things that were previously unfathomable. Um, so I think that what's going to happen is we're going to get more content than we've ever had before, but we're also going to have a very interesting process of free market selection because the internet is basically a filtering machine. And the people that are on the internet, if if the algorithms are not e extremely biased towards censorship, then the reason that memes succeed is because they're mimetically shareable. And that will be the same with stories. If somebody comes up using OpenAI, comes up with some beautiful, resonant, universally insightful story using OpenAI, and it spreads like wildfire through the internet, then it doesn't matter that there could have been a million other crap stories being generated because they wouldn't float to the surface. So I think we're going to see more, more content than we've ever seen before behind the scenes but the market is going to pre-select those that actually like matter. It's like with movies. There are, I don't know how many movies there are in existence, but you know, I could name some obscure movie that only one in 10,000 people has seen because it sucks. But then if I say Jurassic Park, the whole world knows what that is because the market rose it to the top over time across demographics, across cultures, and it, it maintained its place because of its excellence. So as long as, as long as the creatives are channeling excellence in whatever process they feed the AI, then the AI will feed something back that resonates. So it's just going to be an act of, it becomes a new poetic canvas, I think. Or either that or it enslaves us and, and turns us into human batteries. Ah, one of the two. We'll see what happens. Yeah, one of the two. We'll see what happens. Yeah. With that, with that the market will filter the best to the top, what do you think allows something to filter to the top because i think you often hear people talk about a movie they watched that's so good that no one else has ever seen but if they think it's so good why has nobody else seen it is it that artists think in a mindset that's not applicable to reaching a mass scale or what's preventing some of those really really good stories or really really good movies from actually filtering through i think sometimes it's it's as simple as that films are ahead of their time that they they are preempting 
a pattern that's go like a like a wave that that hasn't yet hit the shore. It's like when there's when there's a, a tsunami, right? Like wildlife runs into the center of an island, um, like minutes before the 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 wave is even visible on the horizon because they sense something that's coming. And I think that's what artists do, like great artists. So they they sense a, a cultural shift and they make something, and then a handful of other people recognize and feel that thing. But most of the world doesn't even yet know there's a wave heading to the shore. So I think that I think what it is is that if something's truly great, it may not ri rise to the surface immediately because it's just ahead of its time. I mean, the original Blade Runner was like that. It completely tanked at the box office. There are lots of films that 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 tank at the box office. They just don't hear any resonance. And then they go to DVD um, and then they suddenly accrue this this massive, you know, like um, fan base over time that's like solid, you know, that's like, that's extremely, the foundation becomes powerful. Um, and some of, some of that is simply down to the format as well. That it, One of the reasons that um, uh, DVDs were such a useful component of the film industry is that they offered a chance of revenues for films that didn't necessarily become successful in the box office. But because now DVDs have been replaced by streaming, film studios are far less willing to take risks with things they don't think are going to succeed because the streaming revenue that they will generate off the back end once it leaves cinemas is very, very small. So they can't afford to not play paid by numbers, basically. So no executive's going to take a risk because if it doesn't hit that peak um, kind of saturation at the box office in the opening couple of weeks, it will never make money back because when it goes onto streaming, streaming doesn't generate enough of a yield to cover the costs. So that's another reason that, that we're moving into this, this space where zero risk means highly marketed sequels. Um, but I think that the actual monetization of, of films is going to change in the next few years as well, because I think that we're going to start to see different payment methods start to play a factor into streaming. Like I don't know if you're familiar with um, like Bitcoin Lightning Network, where certain platforms now are basically it's pay pay per pay like for Sats as you stream, and it's a relatively small amount to an individual. But if you manage to win the hearts of a billion people and they're all streaming Sats to you, you're going to make your money. <laughs> And and the actual process of paying the Sats is how you get the data. So it's it's a it's a, a very self-contained, um, let's say, model of distribution. So I think although that's a very outlandish prediction, but I think that's I think that's where we're going. There won't be there won't be production houses, marketing, and distribution um, platforms anymore. It will be far more like YouTube, where you just you you log in, you watch what you like, and the act of watching um, automatically distributes a very small amount of your of your, you know, your, your value to the creators. Which is exciting because to your point with these formulaic movies that we're getting over and over again to de-risk means we're, which is part of the reason why, which has led us to the place where we're not getting art that really resonates. And I, I recently wrote an essay about what makes art that stands the test of time. And to me, it's the people that do take those risks that try to give you what you don't even know you want yet. And it might not even work in the moment to your point, like Blade Runner, because you can't tell what a classic is in the moment. You need time in order to determine whether something is a classic. But I think part of being able to create that requires intuition. And you talked to a Rick Rubin earlier, and that's what artists go to him for is his intuition. And I think that's what's going to separate artists that use AI is their intuition. Because AI levels the playing field on a lot of context. So being able to figure out what to input into AI 
to give to the market, they don't even know they want yet, is going to be a massive skill. Yes. And so yes. In, can you can you train that intuition or is that just something innate that you're born with? I think it's a combination of the two. I think that I've seen evidence of of people that have when I was develop when I was learning to become an artist, um, I was just by f good fortune. I was always as a kid very capable of of drawing pictures, and I just got better at it. Partly because the when you're good at something when you're young, you get rewarded for doing it. It makes you feel good, so you continue doing it. So it becomes a sort of self fulfilling ego cycle. But I've also seen. Um, while I was learning on like forums, because I, I was self-taught to become a digital artist, when I was watching the forums where people were coming on and, and learning and learning for each other, I, I have seen countless examples of people who were utterly incapable of drawing the most basic things. And then you, you, you check back in a few years later and the development is just ridiculous, that the discipline and the commitment has allowed them to reinforce um, knowledge and the reinforcement of that knowledge becomes the, let's say, the, the, I think intuition needs to be, it comes from somewhere and people that are intuitive are almost, they have, it's like an antennae, which is more finely tuned. And I think that the actual attunement of intuition is part of that is, is, is discipline and craft. So the more you become, the more you compound your knowledge on something, the more intuition can flow through it like electricity. It's almost like you're, you're winding a metal cable. And once you've wound a very high tension cable through craft and discipline, when it touches some voltage from the unconscious, it streams straight through your hands, you know, which is, you know, that's what they call flow state, right? When artists are in flow state, they've mastered the craft of, you're in flow state when you type on your keyboard, you know, when you first try to use a keyboard, you the one finger, it's like, yeah, okay, why? A few years go by, you're, you're able to, to, you know, whiz through an email without thinking about it. And the act of, of, of um, taking that cognitive task out of your conscious mind and, and, and bringing it into the unconscious means that there's less levels of resistance between what you're doing in the moment and what wants to bubble up. So I would say that some people are born with very strong natural abilities, which makes them more intuitive. But I don't think that it's it's um, ex like the intuition is some sort of like genetic um, predetermined thing. I think that people that commit to their craft and discipline and open-minded and curious and committed, the more they work at what they do and the more they become have an expertise in something, the more they are enabling themselves to channel that voltage, which comes from who knows where it comes from? No one knows where intuition comes from. No one knows. Albert Einstein didn't know where the intuition of his theories came from when it just popped into his head on a train in Vienna. You know, he's not the source of the intuition. He's just a a, a um, be the word a mediator between mm. a conduit, a conduit exactly. Yeah. Do you think part of intuition as well, on top of? being a craftsman and doing the work and just getting better also comes with studying the past. Absolutely. Because to your point, everything works in cycles. Absolutely. There's like, without a doubt, I can say that the, the most important knowledge that I employ in the modern, let's say field of games and film, the most important fundamentals that I use on a daily basis are all classical concepts. They're not the latest software gimmick. 
if you want to look into the future, you've got to look further into the past. Like you've you, because we do move in cycles. Uh, the world is fractal; it repeats itself just because of lost knowledge. Um, people that that study the classics and really become an expert in the classics and how they work and why have a far more significant edge in the future than the people that have just watched the latest Star Wars movie and because they enjoyed it and then went and made started writing stories about Wookiees and people on spaceships that doesn't there's you know that's why that's why George Lucas could make the original Star Wars was because he studied the anthropological texts of, of uh, Joseph Campbell and Joseph Campbell was studying human history over thousands of years across the whole planet and distilled it and George Lucas was learning from that so Star Wars as a futuristic science fiction was the result of deep historical study. Um, so yeah, that's definitely critical. And you've mentioned Joseph, Cam Joseph Campbell a few times here. You've mentioned the monomyth. For those that are unfamiliar, how would you simplify what the monomyth is? So the monomyth was a, let's say, a, you could call it a theory, but it would be better to call it an observation. There was a guy called Joseph Campbell. He was a cultural anthropologist, which means that he was like an archaeologist for, for human psychology across time. And he was fascinated by how there were parallels between the stories of, say, the Christian Bible and then the Navajo Indians. Uh, he was raised in America and then he went and studied, went and traveled the world, went to like Papua New Guinea, went to South Africa, went to the Inuits, and basically started to catalog all of their myths. And he, he eventually realized that all the myths might have slightly different um, like labels or they might have slightly different variations in, in the dynamics, but ultimately the dynamics of these stories were all basically the same. Like every tribe disconnected from time and space was generating something akin to the the story of great sacrifice of Jesus Christ of, you know, and he, he distilled it all down. And once he distilled down all these various clouds of knowledge, he just sort of began to work out that there's actually a kind of model, which he called the monomyth, which is effectively a 16 stage circle. Uh, and the 16 stage circle if you really distill it down, you realize that it's it's effectively just a metaphysical distillation of all psychological change. So you start in a certain position in the ordinary world. Um, you're confronted with the fact that you need something in order to 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 make your suffering less. You go on a journey into the the world of the unknown. You search. You find something. You take it. You return to the normal world, and you're changed. And that's the, that's the simplest model that I can think to describe it of. So there's you, you need something, you go, you search, you find, you take, you've returned. That's the the, the building block of the, the hero's journey. But how it expresses itself has got infinite permutations because every single person has different, has, has very peculiar needs and journeys and contexts in which they travel through life. So one person's need is different to another's, but ultimately that metaphysical skeleton underpins all of evolution and that's why it's the building block that you can use as a framework for making stories is if your story follows respects that natural cognitive tendency of us to see the world in that cycle uh, and if a story respects that cycle and it's scary because every hollywood movie that's been successful every single one of them you can you can basically show that despite all the idiosyncrasies there's a consistent structure underneath it, a skeleton that Joseph Campbell called the monomyth, effectively. And then that plays into the subconscious, right? Because if everyone's studying these traditional stories, the format of the future stories are going to be modeled after the monomyth. And be, as viewers, we're so used to seeing stories in that structure that subconsciously it feels good to us when something does follow that structure. 
Yes, it's like it just when it when it's there, it clicks. It's like to give you an example because it sounds reductive, right? It sounds like oh, well, every story can't be the same because that would be a very violent reduction of of what you see to be a very vibrant world. But to give you some context, like every person that you've ever met has a consistent structure of a face, two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. And that consistency in the structure is what allows for expression. You don't go up to somebody, uh, you know, like you've met 10,000 people in your life. You don't walk up to the 10,000th person you've met and go, you know what? I'm getting really bored of this facial construction that you're using here. Like you just don't do that. It, it, it's a prerequisite for communication and for value expression. So those people that, that understand that will be able to make Will be able to to harness that structure to express something meaningful and ultimately you can look at the matrix lord of the rings shawshank redemption die hard um you know jerry Maguire. it doesn't it doesn't matter they all follow that pattern and when they follow it just clicks and we resonate with it um it makes us feel a combination of humble and hopeful because you see problems that people are going through, you see the challenges they face, and it's, it becomes a source of inspiration for your own life. And that's that's the, that's the, that's the reason that it exists is is that it allows us to to pass on that that model across generations. Is there a time and place when you should deviate from that structure? You can totally deviate. You can break struct like that's what you know, um, Picasso did, like he learned his craft of painting, but then he, he basically became, uh, against structure in some sense, or he broke structures. And that's, that's what a lot of, you know, indie movies do to some degree. But ultimately, if you stray too far from structure, you end up with noise. So, you know, for example, Tarantino is a great example, like Pulp Fiction, Hero's Journey classic hero's journey. What has he done? The same thing that Nolan does when he chops up his timeline. He breaks apart the the sequentiality so you have to put it together for yourself. But when you actually look at the individual stories inside of Pulp Fiction, you, you align them back up. You'll see the classic, uh, there's you, you need something, you go, you search, you find, you take, you return, you changed. Take, um, you know, take um, Bruce Willis's character, I forget his name, um, but Butch, Butch. So he starts, he's in a pickle, he's been asked to throw a fight, which is against his moral principles. He needs to 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 not do that. So he throws the he he um chooses to effectively um betray Marcellus Wallace. He then goes, uh, and then he realizes that he he's um can't escape without getting his gold watch, because his gold watch represents his integrity and his and his father's um heritage, etc. So he he goes, he finds it, he takes it, gets raped in a dungeon or comes close enough to it, and then he's returned, changed. And at the end, at the end of a story, you get what's called atonement, which is that at the beginning of the story, there's this, this uh, issue of integrity and conflict between him and Marcellus Wallace, and at the end, there's atonement. And both characters have changed from that journey, and both of them have either reintegrated or integrated new values it reintegrated old values, such as the, the gold watch, which is Bruce Willis's fa uh, Butch's father's war watch. And Marcellus Wallace has integrated a new level of respect because at the beginning of the story, he, he sees Butch as basically just a joke that he can just buy out. So once you actually look at these, these patterns, Tarantino understands what's going on. He just has a very strong talent for obfuscating some of that architecture so that you don't feel like you're being hit over the head with it. And that's what storytelling is. 
is finding new ways to say old things. Um, you know, Nolan obviously does that very, very well because he breaks apart the sequentiality and the temporality of his stories, but ultimately they're hero's journeys. And what's important too, and like even relating back to Picasso is you have to learn the structure first before you can break it. Exactly. Like some people, when they, when they start out, they think they're like, oh, well, you can break the structure, so I'm going to. But you don't even know when and why you should be breaking that structure. And so as an artist, I'm almost like you, you can almost get too far into the mind of an artist where you think that you always know best and you can just trust your intuition in every context and you'll be right. But I think that can almost lead you to a place where you're creating stories that aren't, I don't know if commercially viable is the right term, but you have to think about the end consumer to some degree while you're creating. Yeah, well, ab absolutely. It's like, if you think that you're a, an amazing sculptor that can make a beautiful f f portrait of a person, but you've never actually taken the time to understand what a person looks like, and you put an eyeball in the back of the neck, and you put a nose on the top of the head, and you break all this thing, sure, it might be interesting to look at for like a minute. You might be, oh, well, that's an interesting juxtaposition of facial features on a, on a skull. But then if you say, well, now I want the skull to communicate, what's going to happen? Nothing noise. It's going to be incomprehensible. So a lot of people believe that breaking things is a sign of creativity, but when it all, all it actually does is just um, completely uh, tie their hands um, behind their back when they, when they want to actually communicate something with signal because they've broken everything. It's all noise. There's no way that they can express anything anymore apart from a brief, maybe brief discomfort because you've just damaged everything. But that's, that's what art's meant to do, right? It's meant to challenge, you know, expressionistic art is meant to challenge your perceptions and your preconceptions. Um, and storytelling does that, but if you exclusively aim to be disruptive and, and um, to be counter, like, what's the word? Like counter culture or whatever, you eventually end up with something which doesn't say anything at all. So you've, you know, you've, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a balancing act. You can't go too far out before it becomes unrecognizable as art. And I think right now, in terms of like, especially mainstream art, we've gone too far in the other direction where it's entirely distribution focused, quantitative metrics, metrics, metrics. And I think we need to find that middle ground. And hopefully that's what comes out of this rena renaissance you've been talking about. Yeah, it's coming. It's coming. Because um, keep in mind, within the industry, there's a lot of people, there's, there's almost like... I wouldn't know how to to, to to make a clear categorization of the people that are in the industry. But let's just say there's three types of people, two types of people. There's bureaucrats and administrators who are in it for the money that are capable of doing a good job as administrators, which is just, you know, like making things work, booking travel, um, booking logistics for like getting the equipment to places. Then there are creatives who are... Um, People who are, you know, relatively creative, but not necessarily visionaries who are being almost like, um, they're being milked for their capabilities. And then there are a few people, it is a minority, but it's a powerful minority of people who are extremely talented, who are hitting their head against a brick wall because this system is so, uh, lacking in vision. And the only reason that those people aren't recognized or capable of, of, of making a difference is just because there is so much bloated bureaucracy that people that want change just get weaseled out because the, bureau the, the bureaucracy and the middle management don't want anyone rocking the boat because it's pretty sweet what they get. They get their big bonuses, they get their, their, their salary, 
the majority of people in the film industry aren't in it for film. They're in it because there's a paycheck. So, um, and ultimately when there's no longer money coming into the studio, those people who are basically fat are the first to go. So the renaissance comes ultimately when all of the, the uh, let's say the, the human fat of an organization gets cut off. And then suddenly there's a new capability of the most creative and driven and passionate people to communicate. And then of course they do need some management, Like you can't just have creatives just running rampant. They need to be, they need to be, to be managed and to be, to be structured. The problem is that when the management and the structure becomes 90% of the organization, it's just becomes a behemoth, which is what, what Disney is. And, and then throw into that the extra addition of political ideology and policies that makes um, even getting the most simple product out without butchering it impossible, as we see with all of this, uh, you know, rewrites of um, loved stories with completely new agenda-driven storylines that no one wants apart from the most extremely politically, ideologically uh, possessed people at the heart of those, those industries. So all it takes is a handful of very woke people at the heart of Disney um, to suddenly have a completely outweighted uh, uh, influence on a product that then gets exported to a, to billions of people that don't share that political ideology, and that's that's what I think is happening now at Disney is that go woke, go broke, and that's that's definitely happening, one hundred percent, because the, the the company can't afford to continue doing this political nonsense. It's listening to the vocal minority, and then which as a result is not leading to them creating things for the silent majority. Well, here's the thing about vocal minorities, right? Is vocal minorities are very interesting when they actually have something to say, which is against the, which is which is revolutionary or or interesting against the opinions of the majority. And what's happening with this these vocal minorities at the moment is they have a very predictable, non-original set of ideas, but they're talking about it as if it's some sort of a revelation that the rest of the world doesn't doesn't understand the idea about. So the the minorities are protected by the corporations at this point. And when I say minorities, I don't mean racial minorities who are people who are like who are actually being oppressed by some level. I just mean some ideologically possessed person with communistic tendencies gets into the heart of Disney and likes to draw pictures and complain about gender politics. Well the corporation is is incentivized by by various uh, monetary powers to protect and broadcast that particular set of people's views, but it it's it runs antithetical to the majority of people that just want to get on with their lives without being accused of systemic racism or being um, you know some uh, some bloody white supremacist or whatever. Like the 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 politics now, the gender politics and the the racial politics, they are now generating. The animosity that they supposedly were supposed to actually nullify, um, and because it gets gets corporate backing, it gets disproportionate voice in the final product, and then the final product disproportionately turns off the majority of people. So it's quite complicated in in terms of just how bizarre the the let's say the relationship is between these political ideologies and the the funding that comes from on high with various taint. So. You know, looking at the the monetary and financial side of the film industry is also extremely um, interesting. Let's put it that way, because we have we have a lot of money coming in from very a handful of very 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 large 
um, asset managers like BlackRock that have a very specific set of agendas that they want to to put into the products, and the products won't even get seen in the market unless they carry a certain message. So uh, that's why we're seeing such bizarre choices in a lot of the um, creative output of studios as well, is they're actually being put under pressure to create effectively some form of cultural programming or cultural ideology um, that isn't grassroots, it isn't coming from below through the creatives and the individuals, it's coming from above through the bureaucracy. Which is so interesting. It's like, so I've worked in marketing, I've worked in influencer marketing for a long time. And this is like a different level to a problem that's at this influencer marketing level where brands will come in and try and tell the creators how to do the advertisements that they're paying them to do. And then as a result, the advertisements don't do well because the the people watching know that it's not a genuine message. It's they're being forced to say certain things and the ad doesn't work. And it's the same thing here on a different level where when you're being forced to put something in films that the people don't want, the film won't work and your message won't get out anyways. So you have yes. to empower the creators because they know how to speak to the population. And you can see that the box office speaks for itself. So in the same weekend, Pixar's Lightyear came out and um, Paramount's Top Gun Maverick came out. Lightyear, there was no attempt to... It, it celebrated the fact that it was basically just using a loved um, franchise to to beat people over the head with a set of um, political sort of statements and gender statements. And, it, you know, it's, it's Lightyear and it's about, you know... Um, non it's about lesbian and, and bisexual relations or whatever so yeah well believe it or not like people are they don't they don't need to be anti uh something in order to just not resonate with it and then at the same time you've got top gun maverick coming out where where tom cruise and, and skydance and paramount were very meticulous and deliberate to not put any politics in that movie now if you look at that movie they don't even they don't even name the, the country in which that final mission takes place. It is completely devoid of political statements. It's completely devoid of, of gender ideology um, projection. It's not, it's just people, uh, you know, it's, it's classic 80s values, basically. And the free market completely neglected and did not want to buy tickets to Lightyear. And the free market really wanted to watch Top Gun Maverick. And I think that what we're actually seeing now is that the main problem with with film studios and the, the streaming model right now is that a lot of these streaming companies, they make money, but they're actually subsidized. So think about it this way. Imagine that you've got Netflix and you've got millions of subscribers and that's all well and good. But the majority shareholder of Netflix and, and the, the, the person that owns the biggest shares in Netflix is BlackRock, and they're actually paying for you to fail. So if you, if you, don't, if you lose subscribers, BlackRock doesn't mind because they're going to give you money to keep the operation going, even though you're slowly leading your subscriber base. And eventually you get to a point where BlackRock doesn't want Netflix anymore because after bleeding them dry of subscribers by forcing Netflix to make horrific material that no one wants to watch and therefore unsubscribes from, eventually they leave Netflix as just a broken husk of a, of a platform that has alienated all of its original uh, users. And that's what's happening right now with a lot of these platforms. And every time now a classical valued film comes out that just does it simple and well, Top Gun Maverick was not exactly Citizen Kane, but it broke the billion dollar box office uh, in the first weekend, I think. So now I think a lot of people in Hollywood are now realizing 
that while it was very fashionable and trendy and looked good on the the award ceremony stage to 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 broadcast your political views because it made you feel like you were fighting for freedom in spite of the fact that you're a multi-million dollar you know film executive then now realizing that 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 social grandstanding and virtue grandstanding is ultimately going to put them into poverty and it's amazing how quickly the uh, executive producers will change direction when they're faced with the possibility of losing money and i think that there is room for those stories, but I think to your point, like with Lightyear, and I haven't seen it, so this may be a bad I don't take, think anyone has. <laughs> I haven't seen it. <laughs> fair enough. I think that like, to your point, it's, you want the me- if you have a message in there, that's fine, but you want the story to come before the message. But right now the message is usurping the story and it's almost like they're crowbarring their message into the story. Kind of like you talked about with Star Wars, with there's a scene that an executive liked in the original that they want to make sure is in the new one. You have to make sure that everything you're putting in there is in service of the story. And it feels like there's too many things that writers and directors have to try and find a way to incorporate into their films that don't service the story. And the story is ultimately, like when we say service the story, it's kind of a weird thing to say because it's like, well, why are we servicing the story? We should be servicing the audience's, um, servicing the audience. So when we say servicing the story, what we actually should be saying is, well, we're servicing the the collective and individual psyche of our audience. And there are some things which collectively bond us together and a story will resonate with that. And there are some things which are idiosyncratic to in each of us and the story should reflect that as well, which is why the greatest stories all have a polysemic nature. And polysemic means that you can read them in one way or another. So they have subtext. So stories that ostensibly like Jurassic Park ostensibly is a story about a theme park of dinosaurs. Sure, that's the text. You know, what if we create dinosaurs? But the subtext of that story is established in the very opening scene with with Ali, uh, Alan and Ellie, where after he attacks that kid looking at the Velociraptor bones, um, as they're walking up the hill, Ellie says to, to Alan, she says, you know, if you wanted to, to scare the kid, you could have pulled a gun on him. And he's like, yeah, I know. Kids, like, you want to have one of those? And that's Suddenly, so what does that mean? It means these two people are having a conflict over what they're going to do with the future of their relationship in regards to having family and kids. Go to a Jurassic Park, what happens immediately when they arrive? Grandkids of John Hammond arrive, become surrogate children. The subtext is, this story isn't about what if we could clone dinosaurs, it's what if we had children? And then the backdrop of Jurassic Park simply becomes a, a, a canvas upon which to paint that very familiar set of problems of parental responsibility, maternal and paternal responsibility, relationship to kids, relationship to um, the, the responsibility for life. So that's where great storytellers like Spielberg are servicing the subtext of what the psyche of the audience wants to, to, to digest. Whereas people that, that use policy-driven, um, let's call it propaganda, so they don't say, well, let's have subtext about inclusivity. They say, well, let's write on the very surface of our script that we're going to tell the audience that they're not being inclusive enough. And that's that's where you get these um, people feel manipulated. And when people feel manipulated, they don't buy tickets. They don't they don't want to be schooled. They don't want to be preached at. They just want to be they want to be feeling like they're actually participating in something without being manipulated, which is what these other stories fail to do now because they're so politically driven. They lack subtext, which speaks to the subconscious. And what makes good stories, as we've talked about, is the subconscious. Exactly. Exactly. 
This has been an incredibly fun conversation for me. We could keep going for hours, but I want to be respectful of your time. So the last thing I want to ask you, Mike, I want to leave it pretty open to you. What are you most excited about right now? I don't know if my answer is, is going to be particularly uh, interesting given the subject matter. Like right now, I'm very interested in Bitcoin. And I don't mean that as like, I'm interested in it as a financial asset. I'm interested in it because I think it's going to be the most revolutionary technology that's going to change the way everything works. Um, and I'm interested in, for want of a better word, a, an awakening in people where people are beginning to ask more questions about the world around them, um, about film, about the way the society works, about how they work. So right now I'm just, I'm really excited about psychology and uh, learning more about psychology, learning more about economics, um, because I feel like the, the way the tide is turning in the next year or two is going to be, the renaissance that's coming is going to require people to have slightly different inputs on the way that the world works than just the, you know, Marvel Cinematic Universe perspective. Um, so that's a bit of an obscure answer, to be honest. I'm also, I'm, tra I'm training a lot. I've found, I, I'm now finding great value in physical training. And I realize that's the one thing that AI can't take away from people is their own will, their own discipline and their own relationship to their body. So uh, if AI is about to dis disempower a lot of uh, the working industries, um, well, people need to be focusing on themselves and their, their health, their psychological health, their self-reflection, all that kind of stuff. So that's, I think that's pretty much it. I'm not particularly excited about any um, movies or TV shows or games. I just feel like there's, I feel like we're waiting for the next stage where someone has something really, really amazing to say. Um, and that, I think that's going to come out of nowhere, like a tsunami. You know, I think I think there's there's a wave of new content coming. We just don't know what it is yet. I'm excited to see what that is. Mm. Yeah, sorry, that, that was a very rambling answer that I don't think no, had that's any okay. particular outcome. So. No, I still think it relates back to everything we've talked about because from my understanding, kind of from an outside perspective, you've studied psychological principles and applied them to storytelling to see what works. And now you're just taking those principles and you're moving your focus to Bitcoin to see how the psychological principles will apply there. So I think it still connects, if you ask me. Yeah, there's there's a common thread. I don't know what it is, but when I look back, all the random dots do connect up. So uh, so yeah, I think I think that's going to be... Also, not least of all, because there's, there's also a new... Uh, from the perspective of finance... Um, there's a massive inversion that's coming when it comes to the market value of businesses, individuals, and um, people that own Bitcoin are possessed by a certain set of values, which they call the sovereign individual thesis, which is the, the, the ability of self-sovereignty, of, of self-responsibility, of um, not being beholden to the authorities of the state and banks. And these people are holding onto the most valuable asset in the world, and it's about to grow in its value. So there's going to be a strange uh, shift soon where the financing of projects like Blade Runner isn't going to be coming from FedEx and, and BlackRock. It's going to be coming from people that are newly minted billionaires. And those newly minted billionaires aren't going to be setting out with a, a political ESG uh, model of subscribe to you know new age communism. They're actually going to be saying, well, we have this amazing capacity to make new content and I think that's what we're seeing on the internet right now is this burgeoning 
this flourishing of things like podcasts and long form conversations and and projects that are made by indie kind of developers that's the future and i think that that's bitcoin's part of that i think a lot of the the monetary power is going to come from a new breed of people that believe in a different set of values to what's been producing the crap we've been digesting for the last 20 years that's interesting. I was at TIFF this year and I was speaking with one of the directors after, I can't remember, it was Daniel something, but he directed a film called How to Blow Up a Pipeline. And someone was asking him how to finance a film. And he um, he said that one of his pieces of advice was to find people who have made a lot of money off of Bitcoin because they're looking to get involved. And so it's interesting that that's something that you pointed out because that's something that, that he pointed out as well. And with the internet, I mean, that's a lot of where I play, right? Like that's the world I live in a lot of the time. And I think that a lot of exciting things are happening there, but I also think we're seeing very similar patterns that is happening in Hollywood, not necessarily in terms of the messaging. I think the problem with YouTube is there's not a lot of people who actually have something to say in their content, but I yes. think it's over-indexed yeah. too far on the side of data-driven insights and not enough story. And so I think we need to pull back in YouTube as well. But again, that's a whole other other podcast, whole other conversation that we could have. But there's another There's another component to this to do with this renaissance where content that is valuable will be self-selected onto new platforms because it can't be shared on things like YouTube. So YouTube, for example, is is beginning to tighten its grip on censorship so highly that anyone that has anything interesting to say can't say it on YouTube. So then they move over to Rumble. So suddenly what you've got is it's like Noah's Ark, that the these other platforms which are offering the ability for free expression will naturally become attractive to those people that have interesting things to express. So the new platform self-selects the highest quality innovative ideas that can't literally can't survive elsewhere. Um, where, whereas YouTube, because of its policies, will end up just uh, getting more and more of the same meaningless content creators until eventually it collapses on itself, like Tower of Babel or something. So. So we're going to see this interesting dynamic where those who have something to say will go and set up new platforms and be on platforms that aren't beholden to the to the um, to the top down bureaucracy and micromanagement of sensors and whatnot. And I think Rum Rumble's doing that right now. I think that's interesting. That's something I haven't thought a lot about recently. Even like not necessarily something to say in general is kind of what I was talking about. Like a lot of them, it's all spectacle. There's nothing else beyond that. And I think that's something that that's lacking as well in online content. Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. But but anyways, Mike, this has been an absolute pleasure. I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Technically, this is a new show. This, this is the first episode of the new show. So I appreciate you for oh, coming cool. on. Good luck. I hope I don't uh, become a bad omen. Just no, tank, not tank, at all. Thank your show on episode one. No, you are you have nothing to worry about. I want to give you the floor now though. Where can the people find you? Plug anything and everything you got right <laughs> oh, now. Oh, I'm I'm horrific with uh, online presence. Um I have a website called MikeHill.design that I haven't updated in uh in six seven years uh i've got some youtube content on if you type mike hill film analysis there's some stuff on youtube uh that's pretty much it and i'll, I'll be honest i keep i keep a low profile partly by design these days but i will be updating my website soon because i've got some i've got a new series which i will be releasing soon with um with a bitcoiner no less called robert breedlove who runs the what is money show and we are actually going to be doing a new series that revolves around focusing on the psychology of film and um and what it has to say about uh being human culture sociology economics so that will be a, a thing that comes out relatively soon and if it does i'll i will attempt to have details on my website 
Sounds good. I definitely check out your YouTube. Some of those videos you have, it's like the Terminator 2 one was the one I watched the first time and I was instantly like, I need to reach out to you because um, it's just that good. So I highly recommend anybody listening to this, especially if you want to learn about storytelling, you got to check out Mike's channel. Awesome. Appreciate it, man. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. Thank you, dude.